Hi there, my name is Corey Johnston. And I'm Michelle Maunder. And you are listening to Spirited Conversations, engaging and elevating pediatric occupational therapists. A joint collaboration between SEED Pediatric Services and Developmental FX. Each week you'll hear from myself and Michelle as we nerd out with Tracy Stackhouse. Just a note before we start, Spirited Conversations is for informational purposes only. We're not intending to be a substitute for professional medical advice or therapeutic intervention. We urge you to seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health professionals with any questions you have regarding specific medical conditions. With that, let's jump in to today's episode. Hello, welcome back. Episode five, here we are. Hi, Tracy. Hi, Michelle. How are you guys? Good, Corey. Hello, Trace. How are you? Hey, I'm so good. Great to be back again, you guys, and ready to have another fun conversation with you. Yes, we're going to jump into modulation. We started to talk about it a little bit at the end of the last episode. Um, and I just want to let everybody know this is such a big, big, big topic. And, um, it was really confusing for me initially when I started learning about it. And so be okay with the process. (laughs) It might not all make sense. Um, it's still, I'm still learning about this seven years in, um, and, you know, it'll, it'll come to you as it comes to you. And as you pull this stuff together, just keep coming at it. Um, and that's kind of fun. This process kind of lets us do that. This conversation, you can be part of this conversation. Um, and I think every time you talk about it, you add another little piece to it or, um, so yeah, I don't think we'll ever be done. And the science is moving so fast that we're yes. not going to shut the file <laughs> on this. We're going to keep coming at modulation and, um, and kids and how it gets impacted. Yes, for sure. Continually. Yes. So I'm going to, I'm going to sort of put together my words around this, um, concept. And I know that the way I've put it together is probably more basic than it actually is, but that will give us sort of a way to talk about it maybe from there. Um, and we can then refine that. So I, when I think about sensory modulation, I always think about, I actually go back to my initial traffic jam in the brain in, in like volume dial. Um, and I know that Jen Jared was the first person yeah. to sort of introduce me to that concept. So I always think about the nervous system's ability to either, and I say turn the volume up or enhance certain inputs or its ability to turn the volume down or dampen or quiet, sort of, I guess quiet's not the right word, but sort of reduce, yeah, reduce other inputs. And that that function then allows the nervous system to organise and and pay attention to, I I, want to say what's important, but that is a very dicey word because if the brain is in a different state, different things are important. So um, I guess to be able to dial that up and dial that down to match the situation or the environment. So that's kind of how I've put it together. But uh, there's so much to that. So Corey, that's a beautiful, that's how I think about it as yeah. well, probably from Jen Jerub as well. Um, and uh, I think that's a, that's how I explain it to families um, and educators. So I think that yeah. is how I started with that language. And it still is a really um, accessible way mm. for parents and kids to understand that for themselves. Yeah. So I guess for me, it's now well, what's the mechanisms behind that? And, and 
um, because it's complicated. Like the brain's ability to do that is complicated. And so um, I guess understanding the how or the why, um, how that gets organized will then allow you to be able to intervene or to support the function itself or to know when it's getting disrupted as well. So, um, and to piece that out from everything else that might be disrupting it. <laughs> like if you're just thinking about, if I said, oh, the child's ability to match the environment or the demand, then you have to be able to separate whether that's a modulation issue or whether it's a postural issue or, a, you, you know, there's so many potential ways that the child might not be able to ma- match the demand in front of them. So, yeah, let's talk about modulation. How, what do you dive. think, Tracy? Yeah, I love it. I love it, you guys. So, so here's the thing. Starting with that basic concept of dialing up and dialing down is a great place to start. But then the brain isn't one single dial. Mm. So maybe the first place to, to remember or to start to not remember, but to shift into is to say that if you're trying to dial in to paying attention maybe to our voices right now or to a teacher's voice in a classroom or to my friend's voice that I'm playing with on the playground, what that means is that you're actually dialing up their voice while you're dialing down the sense of hunger that you have because you haven't eaten lunch yet or you're dialing down um the um, feeling of your clothes on your body because they were itching you. And, and so the brain is doing this simultaneous dialing up and dialing down of multiple functions. And, and when it's doing that, the more that it is working hard at that, then the brain is actually having to dial in and dialing down the fact that it's dialing in and dialing down, which is sort of like, deep and hard to explain (laughs) Um, because it's not, it's the salient things like attention and language and processing of other things, but it's also dialing in and dialing down um, the fact that it's dialing in and dialing down. So that's actually what modulation is, is it's the deeper, what state should we be in right now? So sometimes we use that word state mm. um, as kind of a descriptor of the regulatory, how you're showing up, how you're present in the world. So when I say the word state, we're going to connect sensory modulation and the word state together. And that is a big leap. That's a leap of neurological faith, basically, mm-hmm. that there's a connection there. Um, So when I say the word state, what does that mean to you guys in relation to sensory modulation? I think about it in terms of state of regulation. Um, So I probably use those words. So I'm I'm guessing that's what you're meaning when you say state, Tracy. So your state of regulation, which is, I'll, I'll, I'll use the words that I use to explain this to families, I guess, before we get all neurological. Um, is that I explain it like a car will have an engine speed or a basic um, engine idle speed. So a Ferrari will have, um, when it's idling, it'll be revving and its capacity um, will be for more intensity, more power, and it's got, um, yeah, I'll probably say that. And then that other cars like a Toyota Corolla, are we allowed to advertise on this show? <laughs> 
a Mazda 5 is actually my car preference. <laughs> we have no sponsors. <laughs> uh, that its idle speed is lower than a Ferrari. So I guess that um, bodies are the same, that we have this um, idle speed state and that it can change so that we can change our state according to to what we're required to do internally, but also externally, the environment, so that I'm going from a base idle speed and then I will, um, uh, I don't want to say amp, but I will um, move my state up when I'm about to do a podcast. (laughs) And then when I'm in the middle of a podcast, I might put my gears down so I'm in gear one and I'm ready to pay attention and really think about um, what I'm doing here now. Yeah. I have a very, yeah, very similar, like, uh, thought about it. Like, uh, I definitely, I don't always use the car analogy, but I I do think that's a really helpful way to think about it, just because you can push a pedal down and increase speed. And in some ways, that feels somehow similar to the ability of the nervous system to either, and I always say ramp up, either increase the arousal or the the state of the nervous system where there's more activity, more energy. Um, I guess I always refer to as it being more heightened. Um, And a readiness. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not even thinking about like where you've gone too far yet. I'm just thinking about your ability just during the day um, to either shift and match your own state. And I'm trying to put words around what the state is, but I guess it depends on the internal feeling, like whether you're feeling more engaged, whether you're feeling more slow or tired. So I guess I think about state as just the reflection of the nervous system and its ability to match the actual environment. So if I need to be able to read, then I can't be too revved up. I need to be able to shift my state down. Um, And, you know, for me, that might be if I've got a lot of energy, I might need to go and do like 10 big bounces in on the lounge room or something. And then I'm like, you need to do burpees. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like something or like, um, like, I I don't know, you guys don't know this term, but like a pike in cheerleading where you jump up and you touch your toes in front of you. Like, (laughs) you know, I might need to do like 10 of them. And then I'm like, okay, whew. Now I feel like I'm ready to go and then I can settle into the pillows. But, you know, that's just me because my, like you said, my baseline is probably very different to other people's where they sit their idle speed or their normal state, state, their base state state is different to where mine is. Mm. So I don't know, Tracy. And I got that from, I think that's Dan Siegel's and maybe Pat um, Ogden's, is it? I think that's that model of um, modulation. Um, and I think people talk about it in different, different. That's the ways. other thing I was going to say. There's so many different terms for the same thing, yeah. it feels like. Yeah, so what we did was we sort of danced from the first words we said were sensory modulation. Then we said the word state, and we connected state to the window of tolerance or this arousal theory. So what we're talking about here is that state on a in relation to arousal is that idle speed. Mm-hmm. When you are ready to go, whatever the ready is, that you bring to it a certain energy. And that energy has a quality of activation to deactivation mm-hmm. to it that's really individually different based on our personality and our temperament 
but it's also really based on um, the environment and the relationships and the context. So if you, if you needed to go drive on a super challenging, bumpy, skinny mountain road, you wouldn't choose the Lamborg- the fast, fancy car because you'd be more dangerous, right? So if you could go out into a parking lot and choose any vehicle, they're all going to idle at different speeds mm. and they're all going to have different capacities to them. Mm. And we match our safety to and our, and our experience and our adventureness to the possibility. And so that's really kind of what arousal and the window of tolerance are all about. Um, and sensory modulation is one source of the dialing up and the dialing down mm-hmm. of that. So if you only have a really fast car, but you have to drive on a scary road, mm. you can use your brake a lot. You can put it in a low gear. You can control those factors in a lot of different ways if you know how to regulate the car. So if you know how to regulate your system, your brain, you can manage lots of different scenarios. But what happens with sensory modulation problems is that it limits those control factors. So if your little nervous system doesn't manage this stuff well, then you actually don't know how to use the brake very well, or you don't know how to use the accelerator very well, or you only have it full on and full off. You don't really have the like ability to manage it and grade it and control it. Um, so that's one critical component of when we talk about state. It's the kind of what is my resting idleness and then what's my ability to ramp up or ramp down, push the breaker or, or push the go and how do I go between those places? So that's one element that's so important. Mm, so is, love it. But, Oh, sorry, you go, Tracy. I was just going to quickly. We got a brain explosion. Yeah, yeah. I was going to question because I, I realized when you, um, when we first were talking, when you asked us, like, how do we put this state and, um, sensory modulation together, that I realized I didn't answer the sensory modulation aspect of the question. Um, but that you, you did it beautifully. But so I'm just thinking about in terms of the ramping up and the ramping down, um, we then as occupational therapists think about how sensory inputs support the ramping up or the ramping down. And is that how state and sensory modulation come together? Is that the fact that, like you said, that the sensory modulation piece is so critical to state because input shifts the nervous system's ability to go up or down? Like I know there's or vice versa. Uh, yeah, yeah. Or vice versa that if you're not shifting sensory input, you can't adjust your mod- modulation. You mean if you're uh, not integrating? Your if you're not integrating sensory yes. input, then you can't modulate your state. Or and I know that that's more complicated than just sensory modulation. Like it it's not just sensory input that shifts state, but that's what we're going to talk about today, is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So the other thing that the sensory modulation function and it and it actually draws from detail. So it's drawing out of sensory discrimination. Mm -hmm. But the sensory modulation function, it also tells you when you get into the car to go, when you enter an experience, when you enter an interaction, is your seatbelt on? 
Do you feel snug? Do you feel secure? Do you feel bounded by space? Do you feel a sense of, of um, I'm here and I've arrived and I'm present and I'm safe? And if you meet the fact, those factors, if the answer to those questions is yes, yes, here you are, yes, you're safe, yes, you can engage, then it can dial up and dial down. Mm-hmm. So the sensory modulation function tells you, am I safe or not? Am I engageable or not? If the answer is yes, then proceed with mm-hmm. the go or the no-go. But if the answer is no, then it tells you, you actually don't have the freedom to go here. You don't have the freedom to start and stop. And we're going to start making those decisions for you because we have to protect you and we have to keep you safe. So sensory modulation informs the go, no go of the modulation circuitry. But the very first question that it answers is the safety question. Hmm. So is that through limbic? So the, sensory input coming in through is it reti- the reticular so I'm, I'm I know some people might not know these terms um, but take it as you like it and you know you can ignore these terms if you don't want to know anything about them but is that through the reticular activating system up into the limbic system into the immediate like into the is that how that's happening or how how is well then to the because funnel cortex is there is still well, yeah a so what so, too? yeah how's that happening so information inputs coming in into mm-hmm. the nervous system and mm-hmm. then it's getting evaluated somehow for yes. for yeah threat or safety right yeah that's exactly right so the first key word there is evaluated the information is getting evaluated yeah. and it's getting evaluated first for is this a good thing or not a good thing is this a soft, touchy thing that I want to experience or is this a threatening, spiky thing that I don't want to experience? So on the first level, that's a sensory question. Mm. Right away, then it gets processed. If, it, if the answer is this isn't safe, then what happens is there's a mobilization across the circuitry. Um, it actually starts in the reflex arcs, not even in the brain. It mm. happens all the way down in the body where you are turned on to be faster, move away from, withdraw, have a reflex that withdraws from the touching of the hot thing or the spiky thing or the uncomfortable thing. So it'll mobilize your phasic muscle activation and move you away from the source of threat. And then in your brain, It'll mobilize the activations and energies that'll protect you. So it moves through the reticular, the activating systems, the arousal systems. But right away, it's going to start to interact with um, the diencephalon, these deep circuits in the brain that are related to the autonomic nervous system. Mm -hmm. And that autonomic activation is going to shift you more out of engagement and into uh, protection, it's going to activate that fear, fight, or flight responding. If the if the threat is really significant, like if the thing that you saw or touched or engaged with on a sensory level 
was a really humongous threat, it might freeze you or shut you off or shut you down. So you're going to get this mobilization or demobilization in the autonomic nervous system. And then you're going to also have this emotional response. And that emotionality is going to recruit then the social circuitry that'll make you wonder about, is there a person here to keep me safe? What would my mom do in this situation? (laughs) Who else can I invoke and think about to help me problem solve? So right away, the social brain and then the prefrontal cortex will also start to be involved in terms of problem solving. But that's a cascade, right, up this hierarchy of layers Mm -hmm. of nervous system. So none of it, and that all kind of happens a little bit parallel and a little bit sequentially. Mm. Yeah, it's super complicated. So look at that. We went from the peripheral all the way through the central nervous system. And we're talking both about sensory processing as well as arousal processing, emotional processing, autonomic processing, social, like it's big. So that's why when we say the word state, it's not one thing. It's humongous. So here we did this kind of quick um, review of how we go from sensory modulation into all of this state, uh, the neural circuitry of state, and it's so big. So I'm wondering what questions that brings up for you guys. Uh, it, um, when we did that um, dance across, uh, I have tried to, in trying to get my head around all of these read different um, authors, Tracy, and so I guess there's a whole lot of different languages and concepts uh, about different elements. And um, what we know is that the brain is really integrated and I think traditionally we have thought of the brain being in different parts, like there's this idea of the truant brain or the three, the hierarchy of the brain, um, and then senses. Like it's easy in thinking about this that we tease it all apart and we put it together a bit like a Lego box, but the the brain doesn't work like that, I guess. It's much more um, fluid and integrated. So I wonder in the pulling apart of the brain, um, the ideas that you just raised then about um, the body's feeling of safety and not. I know Stephen Porges's, um polyvagal theory talks about neuroception. So when you were mentioning that the senses um, uh, evaluate whether they're safe or not. So is that, um, is that the same um, language or concept that Porges is talking about with neuroception? Um, and that cascade that you talked about, about going up and then if it's identified or evaluated to be stressful, a uh, uh, threat, that you have that cascade of um, the, the autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic activation um, and, the you know, the mobilisation. So that sounds like the, um, the polyvagal theory, neuroception and the theory. Is, is that right? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. So here, here's where there's kind of an interesting and important layering of, of information and also a little bit of a disconnect. Um, and that is that in the traditional, not so much the Ayers sensory integration theory, because Dr. Ayers defines sensory modulation as 
the ability of the nervous system to maintain harmony across all of these functions from a sensory foundation. I've just got goosebumps. Yeah. It's so lovely. It is so, it's lovely. so neurologically correct, yeah. but it's kind of lovely. Harmony's lovely. It <laughs> is. It's cool, right? And so um, in that, it's this ability of the nervous system to do all what we started to talk about at the very beginning, that there's lots of dials. There's not one. Mm-hmm. And those dials are all responding to keeping the person in a state of adaptation. The foundation of adaptation is neuroception. So Porridge's concept of neuroception is that you have the nervous system's ability on a sensory, interoceptive, very deep level, being able to discern is something safe or not, if there's safety or protection available. Um, And if you're in a state of threat, that you're going to relatively then either dial up or dial down, activate or deactivate. So the neuroception is this double valence function of of safety threat versus activation, deactivation. Mm. So that concept of a double valence is critically important. And actually, even though it's a Porges concept and not everyone in the world talks about it from a Porges viewpoint, from a really classic neuroscience perspective, we know those two valences exist at the level of every single cell through the whole system and into the whole way that the brain produces behavior. So we have neuroception as a base, but in the OT literature, there's been this funny disconnect because not from an errors perspective, But in kind of this sensory processing literature that's uh, abundant, um, there's this discussion about how things are either under or over responsive or over hypo or hyper responding. And that became this kind of linear continuum where you're either under or over, but it doesn't interact with that valence that's double. Mm. So Under and over is not a very helpful concept. And actually in the new sensory integration theory and practice textbooks, there's really a movement away from this simple linear continuum, which I've been waiting for for a couple of decades. So I'm really excited. (laughs) And so that it better aligns with the actual neuroscience, neurobiology. The the mechanism, right? So that was my question, actually. Yeah, well, it was my question because um, when you were talking about the child that sticks their hand on the spiky thing and I, I know that that's um part of that reflex arc but um I was thinking about oh well what about those kids then when it's not spiky but they react as if what they were touching is that spiky thing and so that that it's, I guess it I, I guess that's a modulation function but you kind of just talked about it then and it it, it traditionally people would say well they're over responders but there's instances where that child won't react in that way. And so that makes so much sense because if they're, say, if if they're on that second valence where they're more activated into threat, then they might react more to that potential input than they would if they're in the state of safety. So that's why it makes so much more sense where you might get this inability to tolerate certain things amped up if you're in a perceived threat state. 
Tracy, just when we're kind of refining all the literature, so the um, I think I already said that uh, Pat Ogden and Dan Seagull are already involved in this as well with the um, uh, modulation model or the window of tolerance. Um, so that kind of looks a little bit different but seems to align to this as well. Um, I'm wondering about um, uh, the concept of arousal because for me, is that the same as state? Are those words used interchangeably or is arousal a little bit more like um, reactivity at a cellular and neuronal level? Like what, how, how can we define that term and is it the same and used interchangeably in the neuroscience to um, alertness or and or state? Yeah, it's, it's a really important question and honestly – this is kind of funny, but um, for almost a year and a half, I've been working on a big science paper that I'm writing with several other people. And one of the problems has been that we can't come to um, enough consensus about what is arousal. And because depending on where you read it and what it, it it's actually quite a complicated question you're mm. asking. So what happens in our OT literature, um, our dear colleagues, uh, Mary Sue Williams and Sherry Schellenberger, put together this engine speed alert model way back in the 1990s. And it's used all over the world with a lot of efficacy. And it it uses this simple metaphor of a car engine. So we're sort of back to the beginning of our, of our, of our episode today, talking about the car engine with the idea of your your basic idle of your engine can um, once you start to go once you start to engage and you're participating is your engine matching just right or is it a little too low or a little too fast and so on some level arousal we can think about arousal that way that you have this kind of match of energy that is um, is it about right for what's called for in the situation or is it a little too high or a little too low? And that would be the baseline of arousal so that your baseline of arousal either runs a little low or it runs a little high or it tends to run just the way that it should run. And that running just the way that it should run isn't a steady state, right? It's Mm. adjusting. So Mm. sometimes I'm going 50 miles an hour down the road because it's a highway and I should go that fast. And then sometimes I should go 10 miles an hour because I'm in the school zone and I don't, and I want to be super careful. So just right doesn't mean one thing. It means that I adjust and match what's going on around. So that on some level is kind of the simplest way to think about arousal. But within that, you have all these dials going on, right? So in order to know that I'm going 10 miles an hour in the speed limit for the children's school zone, I have to dial down my thinking about the stress at work and my grocery list and what I'm going to do over the weekend so I can pay attention that the children are not going to get run over by my car. And so my attention has to get dialed in Mm -hmm. to my arousal state if I'm going to do a really good job of being a driver. Or let's say that I want to do a really good job of 
learning of driving that car, but now I've, I've never driven a stick shift before and I have to, and I'm really thinking about my motor plan. So now I'm dialing into my attention, make sure I don't run over the children <laughs> and go the right speed and also control my limb as I'm shifting the thing. So now the brain is more working harder. And the more that it has to think about shifting the gears, the harder it's going to be for it to keep it at 10 miles per hour. Yes. Because of the simultaneous processing that's happening. So state is actually all of that. And that's why it's so complicated. And is that, I'm taking a leap now, but some of our um, kiddos, and I guess for you, that some days if we've had a hectic day at work or you're like, Corey, and you're moving and you've got lots going on, um, is that I'm like, I'm going to avoid the schools today. That was too hard on my brain. You know, that was too taxing. That took too much of my attention and required too much energy for me to manage that safely today, I'm going around the schools today. And I guess that's what we see kids do is when they're having a tricky time managing their state that they get um, sticky about where they're going to go and what they're going to do, that they want to avoid those tricky times and they'll take an alternate route or get lots of rules about, I'm going to go past the school, but we can't have the music on, kids, nobody talking, you know, and I'm actually not going to change gears. I'm just going to idle past there to minimize (laughs) in second. (laughs) And I hope the That's exactly right. So you know what you just did, Michelle, was you connected the whole conversation to the higher level capacity that sensory modulation fuels, and that's what we call self-regulation. So (laughs) self-regulation is that adaptability that we all have to to make those decisions like, ooh, that's not comfortable. I'm just not going to do that. Mm. Or, But what can happen in a nervous system that doesn't function well is that isn't a volitional decision. It happens to you. So my nervous system is so overloaded by sound that I can't leave my house. Mm -hmm. So you can't have adaptive, you can't come up with an adaptive strategy to work around the discomfort of loud sound. mm -hmm. That's right. So uh, can I come back to the separating state from arousal piece? So in the example we were talking about driving the car, So arousal is just how able I am to sort of move my attention and hold myself uh, in the place that I need to be paying attention to. Is that what you – so like I needed to pay attention to the fact that it's changed to to, I'm just going to say 40 k's an hour because it's a school zone and um, that if I can do that, then I'm managing my arousal in that moment despite potential stresses – about, I don't know, I need to pick up my child or something else is going on so I can manage my arousal to stay tuned into the fact that it's 40K and I can do that. Whereas state is, um, let me see if I can put it together. So now you've amped the task up and I have to drive my manual car and I have to think about there is a lollipop man there and I need to stop and I need to, I'm, I have not drive stick before and I need to change it. So now the arousal piece is the fact that I could stay with the task, but now that the, there's simultaneous processing of multiple things, my state has shifted up or like, how am I describing that? How should I put that together? Yeah. 
Yeah. So I, I think that that is how you put it together. But part of it is that we try to put, you know, 18 different processes into one word or one concept. And so that, that starts to, to fall a little short. So when we, you know, when we dive into training people, I guess, therapists, especially to do clinical reasoning on this, what happens is that we start with the base of neuroception. What are those valences looking like? And then what does that window of, of, arousal look like around that and then when you start to bump into the edges of of functioning what's the impact of that on all of the arousal functions and so the arousal functions are what we're kind of alluding to here we've talked about attention we've talked about action regulation kind of managing the stick shift and figuring out how hard or soft to push the brake um but there are other functions. So there's emotionality, mm. affective processing that's highly involved here. And then again, those autonomic functions. Um, so those A, we call those the, the A's of infancy, Lester and Tronic named it that. But it, it, there are these A functions that are all related to the regulatory capacity. And those are informed by sensory modulation and then you have that arousal state that's not just arousal, it's all of the A's together. Mm. So arousal is one and state is all. Okay. Got it. Does that help? I think yes. that might help me a minute. So a lot so I think you were talking about just um one in one moment you were talking about the optimal uh, range of arousal, right? So there's a range there. So if I have uh good capacities in my system to tolerate a number of things at once, then I can stay, I can maintain an optimal range of arousal with a lot of load. Is that right? Whereas Mm -hmm. if once I get, so once I hit the edges, so of the edges of my optimal, so if I start to get too activated or too aroused and there's too much load, then I'm starting, then my, the state is, I'm shifting into a different state of nervous system I don't know is that right yeah then then you're not as adaptive and so then what happens is that the system has to start to tell you wait a second you need to reduce stimulation maybe it's the sensation that's too much for you so if you dial down the sensation maybe then you can hang in there with your arousal yeah or maybe you need to dial down your language processing or maybe you need to dial down your attention, or maybe you need to dial down one of the other A's. And so it's a very dynamic, very complicated process. And what happens to our kids is what you see in them is in an optimal state of arousal, everything kind of works, right? Their Mm -hmm. sensory responses look really great. Their their safety and engagement looks awesome. Their attention is good. Their affect is great. Their action regulation is really spot on. And then when you start to, so this system works as a constraint. It's a, it's a narrowing window. That's why we call it the window of tolerance. So as that window narrows down, it's more likely you're going to bump the edges. And as you bump those edges in our kids, what you see is inattention, hyperactivity, action dysregulation, fear, fight, or flight responding, um, you see them get antsy and agitated. You see them get uncomfortable in their own skin. You see them 
over responding to every little sound around them. You see them hiding. You see them seeking comfort. You see them dodging out of situations. You see all kinds of different ways of coping, but it's because that window got narrow and they can't handle it. So as the window opens up, then you see, oh, this return to adaptability. And the, and the window narrows down and you see bumpy edges and you see chaos and rigidity and um, a lack of flow, a lack of integration, a lack of regulation. So we just say dysregulation. But dysregulation isn't one thing. It's all of that whole cacophony that I just started to sort of start to label. Um, and, and you just see this lack of integration. So what is it that, you know, Dan Siegel talks about in the flow of integration gives you regulation, regulation gives you integration. It's the back and forth relationship between those two things. And that's why we end up treating it because we're treating problems of integration. Oh, that's so wonderful, Tracy. There is so much to get our head around. I guess when I have a, a kiddo in the clinic, what I really start to do is draw on the first thing I do, actually I do it when I look at all the people in all the world now, <laughs> is that concept that you had in the um, uh, Step SI uh, where I literally draw an L and on that um, axis going up, I'm not very good at my maths, what goes up the vertical is the um, is that uh, – is the state. Uh, so I really look at down low. I'll, um, if they've got a lower state of regulation, then I will just do a line across down low. Um, so that when a kiddo comes in, that's really what I'm looking at. At what state, um, uh, sorry, and not just one time. So over the course of, um, you know, a few, because sometimes the kids, it's variable when the kids come in, uh, some kiddos are lower in their state because of a new environment. But I really am tracking where is their um, base state. And then I'm looking at um, their sensation, I guess, specifically um, their processing and modulation of sensation. So I'm noticing how they process sound, um, taste, smell, vestibular input, probe input. So I'm really noticing um, what might um, uh, they be defensive of. So auditory defensive, for example, and that's cueing them not to be safe. And then I'll be looking at what their... um, uh, their range of to- uh, what they tolerate, so that window of tolerance. And I'll literally draw two lines across. Um, I use them in dotted lines where it's really like, well, this is their window of tolerance. They're really narrow. And I'll make mention of, you know, auditory input, tactile input is a cue for, cues them to be feeling not safe, so a threat. And it, um, promotes that or activates that defensive pattern and their particular profile is to mobilise into a flea state and they'll run. So each time I'm seeing a new child and really every session and throughout the session, I'm really just checking in my mind state, um, sensory modulation and and their adaptive and what um, might push them out of being adaptive. So it is... Is that how you do it on a really practical level? 
Yeah, that's so exactly spot on. And that I think is is clinical reasoning around sensory modulation and regulation in a nutshell. And that's what we have really on the left-hand side of the handout is an opportunity to use a sketch pad to draw out that L-shaped bar graph that captures for us arousal state across time, how wide or narrow the window of tolerance is, where it's located, and then what happens when the kid bumps those edges. Um, And really the thing that's interesting about this is that we have assessments for the problems of adaptation, like anxiety or attention problems. We can get a sense of over and under responding on some assessment tools. We can get a sense of defensive responding and variable responding, but there isn't really a whole comprehensive assessment that tells us all of what we need to know. So the only way we can do it is by what you're doing, which is to draw it out, gather that information and track it across time and and circumstance to really get a sense of the dynamics of this complicated system. So I love that you're doing that. And I think it really, so as you've done that, Michelle, how did it change your clinical practice to do that, to insert that process in your thinking? I, it is how, it is the information that allows me really to in the moment decide what to do. So from moment to moment, I guess what I feel like I'm gathering is this massive info bank about what is supporting the child um, and what might be really a, a signal of threat for the child. And so that when that happens, I'm noticing, oh, that was a little flea, you know, mobilised response. Were my eyebrows too big? Was my laugh too big? You know, did I play too big? Did that, you know, was – so I'm just really marking down what was the impact – what was the um, input that was dysregulating uh, for them – and, and that what – so I'll um, note that and then I'll note the things that um, signal safety for them so that, that I'll help them recover um, by, by um, you know, for example, if they've got affect dysregulation, that I might lower me and or just have a softer face and speak with porosity. So I'm signaling safety to so help them, I guess, self um, – to signal that I'm ready to, for them to return so that when they're ready, they'll come on. So it's really um, helping me work out whether where, what state they're in and what, uh, what we can do in the session. And if, if their state, um, if they're a little dysregulated and that looks a bit fragile, then I'm really going to work on uh, regulation first. Um, and I'm going from all that information that I've gathered that I'm using the things that I know support their regulation so that they come back into that better state of regulation. And, and I guess as time goes by, when I want to expand their tolerance is I'm going to bump up to the edge of that top window of tolerance, um, with, and then offer some support. So they're, um, you know, hitting it, feeling a bit fragile, but hopefully coming back into that um, regulated state again so that they're over time by bumping into that top edge of their tolerance. Um, yeah, widening it over time. Yeah, that's that cool. is so beautifully described. And I think 
it's essential because the treatment requires that we bump into those edges adaptively mm-hmm. and that we resource the child to be able to have an adaptive response to those edges being, and that's how you build resiliency. That's how you build that window of tolerance. It's how you expand it. And if you don't have that visual image of what it is that you're doing in treatment, I don't even really actually know. I think you end up doing very formulaic treatment that doesn't spot on really build the capacity. And so I love that you're doing that. And I know, Corey, you do the same. I mean, I've seen you treat where I can almost, you're so present with the children, but I can see you almost picturing that window of tolerance and thinking about it. 100%. And when you were talking about um, just Michelle in your treatment, like so many things coming to my mind around, uh, I mean, there's the modulation piece of the actual sensations that are coming in. But as soon as you start to think about whether the child perceives they're in, sa- in a safe space or whether they perceive that this is too much, um, it's fascinating how much that changes what they can actually process and organize. So, um, for, yeah, like if you, even if you picture that X, Y axis graph and you have their range in any moment in the session, you can see the range narrow down, um, depending on like what's going on and what demand you're putting on that child. And so I think it's fascinating. Like if I'm doing a task and I've just loaded up the motor system or I've, or I've, I've loaded them up. In a, in a language, I've given them too much language, and I see it narrow down, and I see them mobilize away, or they're no longer adaptive. And I think that was the cool thing that you said, Tracy. Was I hit the ed- we hit the edges adaptively, so that it's for me that brought up that comment that you had around volitional response rather than reactive, mm. because that's what we're looking for. Because all the time these kids are reactively responding rather than hitting the edge and then adaptively, volitionally having an adaptive response. Um, they're just kind of controlled by the nervous system. So that's the treatment. And gosh, is that hard to explain <laughs> like mm. to a parent? And so the, I'm always using that graph to help explain that concept um, because in treatment, it requires such sophisticated, uh, I guess, ability to go with what you see in the moment, but have the knowledge around why you're seeing that in the moment too. Mm. So, yes. <laughs> I I explain this to every single, I was going to say carer, but I actually talk about this to anybody who will listen <laughs> because it helps decide what you're going to do. So if I... Um, see little kiddo, you know, so parents can start to see their child through this lens, I guess, and make decisions about are they even going to have a big hello, how was your day, darling, when the child jumps in the car. Because if you see them, literally their their state is really activated, mm. so their body's really upright, their face is really stern, there's no eye contact to the carer, you can see that they're loaded. So talking about how's your day, dear, how's your maths assignment, mm. we've got to go to Woolies to pick up some avocados, yeah. you know, that 
is going to be a source of stress for that child. And so you choose not to do that if you possibly can. Yeah. If the window's already narrow, yeah. don't add any don't more load. I think that makes me think about what Tracy says to us all the time, which is regulation is the basis for everything. Like, yeah, absolutely. If you're not regulated, yeah. then what you, you can't really add more anything. <laughs> like, yeah. um, and so sometimes that's like trying to highlight that to parents just so that they know what I'm trying to do because I need to get them first. I need to get them regulated. I can't do any, I can't ask any more of them at this point in time because they're not in that state. They're not in that range. And sometimes that can take multiple treatment sessions to work out what that actually is. You know, is it a fort where they literally have this safe nest that they, you know, physically have a sense of safety? Is it music? Is it affect? Is it no task at all other than just rhythm and, you know. Is it visual containment? Do I have to get into a small space with this child? Is it Because we're so greedy and we know that this neurological change only happens once we've got them regulated, but then to expand them, we actually have to start challenging them. So then I get really greedy because it was like, right, I feel like I've got your recipe, you know, recipe for feeling, perceiving safety and uh, I know what all your dials are, buddy. (laughs) So then I start messing with them and think, right, I'm going to put the noise, you know, the louder. All due respect, I don't mess with people's brains. But, you know, (laughs) that you'll start if you know that – auditory um, input is difficult, I'll start amping them up when I see them regulated is it's like, right, well, now we need to start um, providing all the cues of safety, layering that on, but adding adding the source. Helping you be adaptive. Mm. Yeah. Precisely. You guys (laughs) rock. I love it. I'm so proud. Yay! We love these discussions. You taught me all these, Tracy. Uh, yeah. I've got to say, I've got, oh my gosh, I don't want to tell you how many hundreds of dollars of books. Oh, it's yeah. really hard to get your head around so um, this work. Um, theoretically, I guess, and then having them align because the language is different depending if it's neuroscience, psychology, you know, there's all the... Um, sections um, come at it with different language so then to merge them but bring them into the OT language in my experience yes there's been some early um, people like Ayers um, how did your engine run like we did that I probably got the car idea from them so I'm sorry if I didn't credit them probably Um, and you Tracy you've added you've allowed me to make sense of that in the OT sense, I guess, and then add in all the elements that we know so well, which is um, is sensation, I guess, is motor planning, um, is relationship. Yes. So thank you, Tracy, and yes. all the forerunners for yeah. uh, bringing this and making it so accessible and, for OT. And listeners didn't know this, but that bar graph chart that Tracy does where she maps out a child's state and the their window and how they bump the edges and what narrows that. She's been doing that for like how long, Tracy, since the 90s? How long have you been? (laughs) Yeah, so in the Step FI, you know, Julie Wilbarger um, first made this graph way back in 1991 that was just an arousal graph related to sensory processing, really sensory response and recovery, which is the definition of on some level, the definition of modulation. And so we included it in the step SI when we were figuring out how to treat sensory modulation disorders. We said, you have to make this graph to 
figure out your clinical reasoning because there's no assessment. So this is our only way forward. And then, um, you know, a few years later, the concept of the window of tolerance became a concept in the psychology and psychiatry literature from Dan Siegel and Pat Ogden in 2006. She really, you know, popularized that. But we were, I think it's, it's not theirs. It really comes from the Yerkes-Dodson principle, which goes all the way back mm. to the early 1900s. Yeah. So these are not new concepts, but the way we conceptualize them in our OT literature really takes sensory modulation to a whole new level. Yeah. And that's what we need for treatment because it isn't just the sensation. It's sensation for the purpose of. Yeah. So sensory modulation is for the purpose of regulation yeah. and regulation is for the purpose of adaptive self-regulation. Yes. Cool. Oh, thanks so much, Tracy. Gosh, I learn something every uh, time we talk about this. So we will wrap that up now. I think for the moment we could go on for hours. You know that, don't you? So <laughs> we will come at this in, um, the next episode, we'll have a more practical application of this and really extend it into intervention planning. I think today uh, my takeaway is that in trying to get my head around or, or theorists trying to get their head around particular phenomenon or elements, we dive into things and look at it quite um, isolated maybe and separately and that like we know with all the other systems in the brain that it really is very very in integrated and that sensory modulation is no different that it really is a very integrated um, and connected part of regulation uh, and they don't stand alone. Cool mine is probably from today um, was I'd never really separated state from arousal before. And, and, I, and just even thinking about arousal, um, knowing now that it's, so, it's, there's so many pieces, like it's so complicated. I knew that already, but it, it just really highlighted for me how complicated it is. And so I'm, my key takeaway is, is I'm going to go in and dig into that because it's, it's, it's com complex and I want to get my head around it. So I'm keen to go and figure out how these elements are all different. But yeah, that's it for me today. Oh, wow. That was another beauty, Trace. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. Yeah, so great much. conversation, you guys. Thank you so much for, um, you know, just the great conversation. And I look forward to deepening it next time. Um, yeah, great. See you then. See you. Bye. This podcast is brought to you by Seed Pediatric Services and Developmental FX, produced by Little Image Co. For more information, please go to our show notes on our website, spiritedconversationspodcast.com, or catch us at our Seed and Developmental FX Facebook or Insta pages. So grateful to have you with us today for this episode. Take care and we'll see you next time.